0: Hi, you're listening to the Duty of Care podcast, a podcast produced by the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment of the Delft University of Technology. This podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values platform, the TU Delft platform discussing values for engineering and design. I'm Roberto Rocco, Associate Professor of Spatial Planning and Strategy at the Delft University of Technology. In 2019, the European Union launched its European Green Deal, aiming to make Europe carbon neutral by 2050. We all know the transition to a carbon neutral economy is urgent. But will it be fair? Past transitions have always produced winners and losers, with the losing groups often facing unemployment and poverty, with dire consequences for social cohesion and social justice. Therefore, an essential dimension of the European Green Deal is the concept of just transition, that is, a transition to a carbon-neutral economy that is fair and inclusive to all, leaving no one behind. Sustainable, fair and inclusive urbanization plays a key role in this endeavor. With those ideas in mind, we organized a series of online events and courses that address planning and designing cities and communities for the just transition. By bringing together expertise from spatial planning, Urban Sustainability and Resilience, Resilience Engineering, Ethics of Resilience and Multi-actor Systems. We want to discuss the values in social-technical transitions and urbanization, namely issues connected to distributive, procedural and restorative spatial justice, as well as citizen participation, democracy and sustainability, understood in its three essential dimensions – social, economic environmental sustainability. In doing so, we wish to address the interactions between design and values with an emphasis on operationalizing spatial justice through inclusive vision-making and by using societal conflicts stemming from the transition as springboards to dialogue. So we came up with the idea of this podcast we wish to discuss and exchange ideas with academics, practitioners and students of the built environment to plan and design for the just transition with a robust understanding of the entanglement between spatial justice and sustainability. Today we have with us Stein Osterling, speaking to us from Belgium. Stein Osterling is Associate Professor in Urban Sociology at the University of Antwerp, Sociology Department. He is the chair of the Center for Research on Environmental and Social Change. He teaches courses on urban studies, poverty and social inequality. His research is concerned with local social innovation and welfare state restructuring, new forms of solidarity in diversity and urban diversity policies. He is also the academic director of the newly established Hannah Arendt Institute. Hannah Arendt, advocated active citizenship in which plurality, connection, critical thinking, and open dialogue are central. This is not only at the heart of a strong democracy, it is also an important goal of the work of the Institute. Today, we will get a better understanding of the opportunities to find solidarity in diversity. Stein, the floor is yours.
1: And So I've been asked to talk about uh, solidarity in, in diversity and I have to stress um, that I'm talking from a very specific position. I, I talk on the basis of research which we carried out in, in Belgium. Uh, I'm currently speaking from the city of Ghent in Belgium. Um, so it's research which we carried out in Belgium And it's also, I added some research which we did in mainly European cities. So that means I'm talking to, I'm talking about the subject of solidarity and diversity from a mainly Western European perspective, from the challenges that diversity is posing to solidarity in this specific context. So I hope that that uh, these reflections, which very much are nurtured in this specific context, are also useful from people working in very, very different environments. And I believe that's to be the case because solidarity, I think, is a, is something that concerns us all. But of course, diversity is something very different in different, different contexts. So let me just uh, uh, start. Uh, I think I have half an hour, so I'll try to keep um, to time. The main challenge that we um, um, that we encountered in this context is that if, if you look at the public debates about diversity in, in, in many countries around the world, but especially in, in Europe, is that you see a very strong uh, rise over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, of a neo-assimilationist tendency. And a neo-assimilationist tendency is is a tendency in which diversity is seen as something that really challenges, even endangers society. And that the only way you could deal with increasing diversity in in, in cities and and countries is by reducing at least the visible diversity. And so what we've been trying to do is to try to articulate by looking at practices in cities and specific places in cities, looking at an alternative vision on how we might be able to maintain our solidarity in the context of diversity without having to reduce uh, diversity. And so that's the main endeavor that we started from. So in the Diversities project, which was a a project which was coordinated by the late Ronald van Kempen uh, from uh, Utrecht University, uh, we actually studied um, diversity policies diversity initiatives from the bottom up in 13 cities, mainly European cities, but also involving, I think Toronto uh, outside of of Europe. And what we find out, and that's not a tendency that we see in every of these cities, but what we find out is that in fact, in most national policies, but also to some extent in urban policies, one sees a, a retreat from the multicultural approach an approach which at least values diversity, which, which, in, which sees diversity as something that needs to be embraced, to uh, an approach which actually returns to an assimilationist agenda. And of course, assimilationism is, is, a, ter- is a term which heavy uh, and dark historical overtones. But in fact, what assimilationism means is that the only way to live uh, to live and to organize societies is by reducing the diversity which is present there. And we do see in various degrees, in various different ways, a return to an agenda which says we need to downplay diversity, especially visible religious forms of diversity. We need to downplay diversity to make living together in national states, but also to some extent in urban societies possible. At the same time, when we look in detail at these cities and at what citizens, what different civil society organizations do, In this context, we also see a variety of initiatives of governance arrangements that try to promote diversity, so we don't see this clear tendency towards assimilationism. Which is quite clear on many national policy agendas in in, in established welfare states, We, we don't see the same thing happening to the same extent on the urban level, quite to the contrary, we see a variety of approaches some of which are clearly following an assimilationist agenda, but others who are clearly focusing on an anti-racist agenda, an intersectional agenda, a decolonizing agenda, a more traditional multicultural approach. So on the local level, one sees a diversity of initiatives, which mostly reflect a more positive approach to diversity. And is this um, tension, contradiction between a clear return to an assimilationist agenda on the national level and... A much bigger diversity of arrangements, of governance arrangements around diversity on the local urban level that made us think that perhaps by looking closer at what's happening in, in cities, what we see in, in many of these European cities, perhaps there's a more, more positive approach to diversity and to the possibility of solidarity and diversity, which we can actually identify and try to articulate. So we tried to articulate in this project, which involved not just me, but a lot of different researchers at different universities in in, in Belgium. Um, We looked at alternatives to near assimilationism. And the basic question which which we put forward is, is it possible to organize solidarity in diversity? And our starting point is is a concern, which is, I think, widely documented in the literature. One only has to uh, consult uh, people like Robert Putnam, for example, and his social capital approach, uh, the work of Ryd Koopmans and others, that actually show a concern that formal and informal mechanisms of solidarity... In established welfare state, and then I highlight that we're thinking from an established welfare state perspective here. So the concern that the formal and informal mechanisms of solidarity are actually challenged by the increasing ethnic and cultural diversities in many societies. Now, I'm not going to problematize the word diversity here. Not because that is not useful. It clearly is. And we clearly have seen over the past decades many critical perspectives on what diversity is and when diversity becomes something that challenges society. When there's a decolonial perspective. There is an intersectional perspective, an anti-racist perspective, and so on. But I'm not going to, I'm going to bracket this literature here by saying that actually, in general, regardless of how diversity is conceived, in fact, formal and informal mechanisms of solidarity seems to suffer from increasing ethnic and cultural diversity. Solidarity is a difficult term. It's a term which is used over and over again, and and we all think that we think what it means. Uh, But in fact, if you dig a little deeper, it is not an easy concept to to define and to operationalize. When we discuss solidarity here, or when I use the term solidarity here, I, I refer to the phenomenon of the willingness of people to share resources with each other. So the willingness to share time money, space, whatever people have as a resource to share that with one another. So, solidarity is about sharing and redistributing of resources. The reason why people want to do so is because they feel they share something. They may share the group to which they feel they belong. So they may have a, a kind of group loyalty, but they may also share a fate or feel that they share a kind of future with each other. So the sharing of resources the redistribution of resources is always done on the basis of the idea that people feel that they have something in common, something that they share. And of course, there are lots of disagreements about what exactly it is that they share. So our aim here is to, to, to identify new forms of solidarity which go well together with ethnic and culture diversity. So forms of solidarity which are not challenged by ethnic and culture diversity. And we feel that in order to do so, these forms of solidarity needs, need to be innovative. They need to have something new because a traditional established form of solidarity do not seem to go well together with the increasing ethnic and cultural diversity in our societies. And it's a point I'm going to detail, I'm going to support and elaborate in the next um, next few minutes. And we we're very much inspired by a quote of Sigmund Bowman here, who at one point uh, wrote, not so long ago, uh, that in fact, in multiple ways, and he expresses it very beautifully, he says, in multiple ways, the word solidarity is patiently looking for flesh, which it could become. And it won't stop seeking eagerly and passionately until it succeeds. So basically, he's, he's trying to explain that solidarity is, is, as a concept is, 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 is as relevant to society as it has ever been, but it lacks a bit of flesh. Society has been changing, and solidarity has, be, has to be taught anew. And that's exactly the kind of challenge that we undertook in a research project, which was called Diem, hence the logo at the bottom of, 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 the, of the screen. Now, this is our attempt to kind of summarize um, some a lot of classical work in sociology on the notion of solidarity. So I'm not going to explain this whole um, table here. But basically, what I want to say that in sociology, which I think is the science of solidarity, solidarity is the core term which has been theorized by sociology. Sociologists really think about what makes society possible, and their basic answer is what makes society possible is solidarity, is the sharing and redistribution of resources with each other on the basis of the fact that we have something in common. And if you look at the classical authors in the field of sociology, basically, there are at least four different terms, four different sources of solidarity, which have been identified. And they have been identified in the late 19th, early 20th century. The first source of solidarity is an awareness of interdependence. The idea here is that because we live in complex societies in which we have a large division of labor, we all do different things during the day uh, in order to uh, earn a living. And the fact that we are aware that we need each other. We need to be able to put our children in uh, at school. So we need teachers. We need to have bakers that bake bread. Otherwise we have to bake it ourselves. We have to be, have people who teach students. So we have to have people building roads. So we have an elaborate division of labor in our society. That's typical for modern capitalist societies. And that, the fact that we are aware that we need each other in order to maintain, to, to be able to do whatever we want to do that that awareness makes us uh, willing to be in solidarity with each other. So we are aware of the collective benefits of the fact that everybody can specialize in whatever he or she uh, feels uh, he or she is doing best. The fact that we are aware of these collective benefits creates a system in which we are able to, uh, to be in solidarity with one another. So this awareness of interdependence is one source of solidarity. Another source of solidarity or shared norms and values. The idea that we are all integrated in moral terms in a society, mostly a nation state. And the idea, whether that's right or wrong, that's another matter, but at least the imagination that we live in that society, that we are belonging to that specific nation state, that we are morally integrated in that group, and that with this group, at least we have the perception that we share norms and values, that we have a similar outlook on life, that we have a shared history through which these norms and values were nurtured, and that this gives us an outlook on the present and the future. That in itself is, of course, a very powerful uh, driver of uh, solidarity. And it's also this form of solidarity, which is v- very much the driver and the basic framework on which assimilation, uh, the assimilation perspective is based. Yet another form of solidarity is not a true struggle. Having a shared enemy, having shared interests, and somebody who threatens these interests and mobilized to get your way, to, get, uh, look to, get, uh, uh, to win the struggle, that, of course, is also a very uh, powerful way of mobilizing solidarity. Of course, if you have a shared enemy, it means that solidarity does not extend to that enemy. It means that somebody or some group is always excluded from that, that it's 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 a more exclusionary form of solidarity, but it's a very powerful motor of nurturing solidarity in societies. So one can only think about the labor class movement or a movement for racial justice and so on. These are movements that are nurturing strong forms of solidarity by singling out a shared enemy. And a fourth form of solidarity which was more popular in, in U.S. urban sociology, is the, is, and it's also much more on the micro level than the other forms, which are more macro level forms of solidarity, is encounter. And the idea here was, and it's the idea of the classical uh, urban sociology of the Chicago school, that in fact, by having informal social interaction with strangers in cities, small and informal social interaction, that also nurtures some forms of solidarity something that in the current literature is often called conviviality, the idea that we know how to live with strangers in public space. We know how to deal with others in public transport, in public space, in, 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 in the uh, common areas of apartment blocks, and so on. So these small and lo- local interactions with strangers, which never go really deep, that is, of course, also a source of a more light form of solidarity. Now, these four forms of solidarity... Or as relevant we believe as ever in nurturing solidarity however the spatial and temporal framework in which they have been used to nurture solidarity that is something we have to rethink in order to understand this point we have to have a, a, a small uh, a small historical uh, overview and that historical overview is of course very much informed by, by our european positionality in, in this whole debate in fact what has, what has happened in europe from the late nineteenth from the late uh, last decades of the nineteenth century onwards, up until the uh, let's say nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, is we have organised solidarity, we have institutionalised solidarity in welfare state institutions to a level which is unprecedented. So we have levels of redistribution in some established welfare states which are close to one third of GDP, which is without historical precedent. So in fact, these or societies have very strong forms of solidarity. Of course, redistribution is not always from the rich to the poor. Often it is, but not always. But at least the levels of this redistribution and the way this has been institutionalized in established welfare state is without historical precedent. And our understanding, the way we have conceived and developed solidarity, is very much informed by this history of the welfare state. Now the history of the welfare state, and that's a crucial point, we cannot understand the history of the welfare state and the way it has been trying to organize solidarity without looking at nation state formation. And in fact, nation state formation, the creation of the idea that you belong to a rather homogeneous ethnic and cultural group who has the right to have its own state that idea, the idea of nation-state formation and the idea of welfare state development, is completely tied up, at least in the European context. And so what has happened is, is that small initiatives of sharing resources, of redistributing resources, which began to pop up in the high days of industrial capitalism in cities, in neighbourhoods, in all kinds of locations. These small forms of sharing resources, of protecting people against illness, of of helping people who are unemployed, or helping helping people who, um, uh, who are too old to work and so on. All these small initiatives have over the course of the 20th century, been gradually centralized. And they have been effectively nationalized. And with nationalized, I mean, they have been organized on the national level. So all these local forms of solidarity in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, which erupted, which emerged as a response to the uh, destructive market forces that were unleashed by industrial capitalism have effectively centralized and nationalized in established welfare states. And they have also been secularized because many of them were of a Christian origin and they have been brokertized. So we've seen a gradual centralization and a nationalization of solidarity. And so what one sees is a social insurance system which is effectively the, the application of the idea of interdependence. People contribute when they are at work and they can uh, fall back on that solidarity whenever they are out of work because they are too ill to work or too old to work or they're too young to work. Then they can draw on benefits from that social insurance system. So it's a way of pooling risks. It's a way of organizing interdependency uh, in our society. So you see the inter- interdependence at work here as a source of solidarity. At the same time, the welfare state is also the result of a social struggle. A social struggle that has been waged by trade unions, mainly organized at the national level, but certainly also a struggle on the geopolitical front. It's a struggle against communism. If it wasn't for the danger of communism, we probably wouldn't have had that much welfare state in the Western part of the world. So there's also a struggle here, which was a very powerful source of solidarity. And importantly, and that's important for our argument here, the development of the welfare state was also fueled by nation-state formation, by the idea that we were living, the perception that we were living in culturally homogeneous or uh, in culturally homogeneous countries, in which nation and state fell together in one organizational entity, and that in fact. The reason why we were in solidarity with one another is not because of struggle and interdependence only, but also because we shared norms and values, nurtured through a shared history, and leading to sort of shared consciousness of what it was that was our past and what it was that we were doing in the present and how we looked at the future. So these national welfare states, the fact that we embedded solidarity in national welfare state in territorialized nation-state is in fact predicated on the idea of culture homogenization. And this sounds evident. It's always been like that. But in fact, the movement that fought for the establishment of social rights, that fought for the uh, establishment of welfare state, in fact, was in its origins an internationalist movement. The socialist movement, the labor class movement, in its origins was an internationalist movement. And so something somewhere along the line, this has been embedded in national welfare states. Though there's a lot of historical writings on that, I'm not gonna go into too much detail here because that would take too much time. But that's really important to understand because what it basically means is that the way we we maybe have been imagining, the way we have been organizing, the way we have been institutionalizing solidarity has because of the specific history of nation state formation, welfare state development is embedded has led us to embed solidarity in the intergenerational continuity of supposedly culturally homogeneous population nations whose living together is very much contained within clearly demarcated territorial boundaries of the nation state so the idea is that people live from generation to generation in the same country clearly demarcated by territorial boundaries in which there is not that much migration mobility and so on and which bonds people's life together in in people that at least think that they have culturally a lot in common. However, and that's how we come to the urban level, migration and increasing ethnic and cultural diversity in many countries, not just in Europe, not just in Western countries, but around the world, have been undermining this very idea of the nation state. The nation state is... in terms of of space, dependent on spatial boundedness. You need to have boundaries around the nation state. If you don't have these boundaries, it's hard to maintain the idea that you share a fate with all Belgians or Germans or Kenyans or whatever. You need to have some kind of boundedness to have the idea that you are a nation, a group of people that live together. These boundaries are necessary for that. And of course, that's exactly... The spatial condition for solidarity, which is exactly undermined by increasing migration, by the increasing penetration and mobility across boundaries. In temporal terms, the nation state is very much built on historical continuity. The fact that people live from generation to generation in the same country and therefore have nurtured a very shared perspective on life. Of course, this is not always the case. Talking from Belgium, which is a failed nation state, this historical continuity has always been disputed. But that doesn't matter that much because the idea is that we, the perception is that this historical continuity is there and that this is a very important source of what brings us together as a nation. And so this historical continuity. And the spatial boundaries of the nation-state, which very much are spatial and temporal conditions under which we can organize solidarity in welfare states, this is crucially challenged by ethnic and cultural diversity. Which basically means that the social solidarity are interrupted, at least cannot function in the same way as they did before. Because the intergenerational transfer of culture frameworks is interrupted, New people are coming in. They bring their own culture frameworks. New hybrids of culture frameworks emerge. Discussions emerge about what exactly, uh, uh, sh- how, sh- how exactly should we uh, see um, important historical events. Talking from Belgium, for example, um, we have a lot in common with, of course, the people from uh, Congo. But we have experienced that history in very different terms. And what we're doing right now in terms of the the debate about decolonization is a painful recognition of the fact that we have a shared history but we didn't experience that history in the same way and we have to come to terms with what it is that we did in that history although most people that are now living of course haven't have not been involved in any direct way so this intergenerational transfer of culture framework is no longer a source of solidarity in fact it has become a source of division it divides societies it creates painful debates uh, difficult debates, difficult struggles, and so on. So this intergenerational continuity is no longer there and in fact has become a source of division rather than solidarity. The interdependence is also not working properly as a source of solidarity, because in many countries we see an overrepresentation of ethnic and cultural minorities in of course in 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 for example the unemployment statistics. No, you can think about a lot of reasons for that. And so I am not putting the blame on any group here. But this awareness, the awareness of that this is the case, actually leads many people to say, well, in fact, the solidarity is not working properly because the interdependence is not there. If people are in unemployment, they're actually not really contributing to uh, the social security system. So how can there be interdependence? So this overrepresentation, the difficulties many countries experience in integrating newcomers in their labor market, in their, in their employment system, actually leads to interdependence weakening as a source of solidarity. And the same is true for struggle. And this is sometimes referred to as a progressive dilemma in social struggle, for example, by people like Nancy Fraser, because in fact the struggle in the late 19th century early 20th century looked a little bit easier, it was mainly a source of economic, it was mainly a struggle for economic redistribution. Of course, this is, a, this is a huge simplification, because, in fact, the reason why this, this struggle looked so simple, at least from, from a distance, is because, we, because there was an active repression of the, all kinds of uh, identities, gender identities, racial identities and so on, but at least the struggle looked a bit easier at these times today it's not just about economic redistribution, it's also about cultural rec- recognition and political representation, which means that the struggle has also become more difficult as a sort of solidarity, because we also have internal debates about what is it that is important, economic redistribution, cultural recognition, how much cultural recognition, how does, that ref- how does it relate to economic redistribution? So again, um, economic redistribution has become, a uh, struggle has become a more difficult source of solidarity. So what do we do in this context? And I'm slowly moving towards the urban level, the urban scale. In fact, culture assimilation, although it is tried over and over again by all kind of nation states and also by some um, urban governments, is not going to work. And if it's going to work, it's going to be hugely exclusionary because many cities have become minority-majority cities. In fact, there is no culture majority, at least not in demographic terms. In terms of political power, there often still is a culture majority. But at least in demographic terms, there is no clear majority culture majority in many cities. They have become a city of minorities. So any attempt to impose a majority culture will exclude large segments of the population. So that's not, a really, that's not really a direction we want to take. Robert Putnam has been proposing a more inclusive trajectory. He says, and he points out the history of the United States, which I think he, he, he says, well, in fact, what we have been doing in the United States is we created a novel one out of a diverse many. Out of all this migrant community who came to the US in the many preceding centuries, out of all these many, we have constructed a novel one. And we can do this again, he says. We can create more encompassing national identities. Of course, that leaves out the fact that this history of creating a novel one has been quite a, a repressive one. I mean, at least the original population of the United States has not been properly integrated in that or at least not in, on equal terms. But again, you could see on the long-term how this could work. We would have long debates with each other about what exactly it is that we share and we could create a novel one out of a diverse, many population that find themselves in a specific territory. But that again, that is predicated on the idea of reconstructing historical continuity. Let's try, to have, let's try to create a common history again. And let's do this through repeated social interaction across ethnic and cultural lines. And perhaps it could work on the long-term. You could see that maybe that could work on the long-term and maybe in a more inclusive way than the United States has done uh, up until now because the Black Lives Matter movement, of course, shows that this history was maybe not as successful as Putnam suggests here. But you could see how could this could be working on the long-term. However, what are we to do as urban practitioners, as urban scholars, today, in the here and now? We can't really wait wait for another couple of of generations to end up there. We need to be able to interfere in the here and now. And that's where we have been trying to articulate. uh, So we did research in a lot of uh, places in cities. And we were trying to see how do they try to create solidarities, on these local, in these local urban places, how are they able to create solidarities and diversity? And in fact, it all comes down to reflection about what you share. We cannot share history because our history divides us very often because we don't really share that history. And we really don't share culture frameworks also. At least we cannot assume that we we share this. We need to talk about this. And these debates and these, these conversations will take a long time and will often be painful discussions. And so we need to find something else that we share, something that is a lower, that is, that is lower threshold, that doesn't require uh, the same thing, the same shared history, the same cultural frameworks. And we've been using, and this is just, I mean, there's a whole literature around that. We used many different literatures to come up with this answer to articulate what we saw in practice. So we used literature on citizenship as a practice here. We also used literature on relational urban places from people like Dorian Massey and Ash. I mean, I'm not gonna go into detail here because that would take us too long. Um, but in fact, what we saw in many of these cities actually dovetailed with what we saw in the literature. And that is that in fact, what we share are places and practices. In the here and now, when people in cities are able to nurture, so without the diversity, what they shared was not a shared history, not necessarily shared culture frameworks, but it was that they shared a particular place. Often not of their choosing. Very often they wouldn't want to be there if they had a choice, but they found themselves there. They found themselves there on the shared factory floor in the same office block, in the same neighborhood, in the same leisure place, in in the same housing area. They just found themselves there. And they took that as an opportunity to actively share that place, to take joint responsibility for that place and do things together. Not necessarily having long debates about whether uh, the islam is compatible with the enlightenment values and these kind of things but just doing things together just sharing practices engaging in joint practices and that's what we mean with if you want to create solidarity and diversity and you want to do it in the here and now what we share and and this is very much assumes that solidarity requires that you share something and what you share here is a place Not always of your own choosing but you share that place and you take joint responsibility for that place and you engage in practices and what you share is what you do in practice now this is an abstract argument and i'm i'm um, i hope i didn't lose too many of you by elaborating uh, on these um, historical and abstract arguments and what i want to do for the remainder of the time and if i'm not mistaken and somebody has to stop me if i'm taking too much time but uh, as, as far as i can see i have another 10 minutes and what I want to do in these 10 minutes is, is give you a couple of examples of how uh, that works and how, that, how, we do, how we did see this working. What you see on the screen is a youth movement. A youth movement, is, is youth associations are very popular in many countries. And basically what youth movements do is very easy. You have young people around the age of 17, 18, 19, 20, and they organize in their spare time as volunteers, they organize activities for younger kids. Every week, on a Saturday, a couple of hours, maybe on a Sunday, and they form a group together. They do nice activities together. They engage in plays. Uh, they go on summer camp. They go on on hikes with each other. And in fact, that's it's a very powerful model of solidarity, because what these people are doing, and there are hundreds, and in any country there are many, many people doing so, is they share time, they share energy, and they commit themselves to. Doing these activities they commit their time as young people to give other people other kids a good time so it's an immensely powerful form of solidarity in many societies so you could think well what could be more easy than do this with a diverse group a youth movement what could be the threshold a youth movement it is just people playing together what could be difficult about sharing that uh, this energy and this time with each other well, in fact, many youth movements are not that successful in integrating diversity, in integrating children from a migrant background in their associations, in their daily life. And so we wondered, how come? How come it is so difficult for youth movements to integrate diversity? It looks low threshold; it's leisure time activities. There's not much asked from people. Well, in fact, it was difficult, and the reason why it's difficult is because it is actually based on the same source of solidarity as it is in the nation state. Because how these things happen is that these youngsters who commit themselves often do so because they have been to the youth movement themselves as children. And the reason they went to the youth movement as children is because their parents went there too. And their parents explained to them what people in youth movements do and why it's nice to have that. And why you're expected then if you become older to also engage and spend some volunteer time to organize activities for children so it's a model of organizing solidarity which is very much based on historical continuity it's kids from families who from generation to generation actually are in the youth movement and organize activities as young adults later on and in fact by, by doing by organizing these activities they are supported by solidarity from the community when they go on a summer camp they can always talk to local shops to local entrepreneurs whether they can uh, get some food for a low price, when they get some uh, material to, 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 to organize, place, and so on. So they, get, they can always fall back on solidarity with the community. And many entrepreneurs and shopkeepers know youth movements. They may have been involved in, in youth movement themselves. And so they're very happy to share these uh, resources with these children. Parents are also happy to, for example, um, for free um, uh, drive, children around, uh, do small maintenance work in, 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 the, in the buildings in which these youth, young people uh, uh, congregate, and so on. So it's a, it's a model that really can rely on a lot of solidarity from the community. And that became visible, or that becomes visible in many big cities. And so we actually did research in Molenbeek, and Molenbeek is a, is a, is a disadvantaged and multicultural neighbourhood in the city of Brussels. Um, in this neighbourhood, there used to be quite a lot of youth associations and many of them have disappeared and they disappeared because many of the children and the people living in that neighborhood were not familiar with that tradition and the people the youngsters that actually are familiar actually moved out of the neighborhood because of suburbanization and so this this very traditional model of solidarity actually disappeared from the neighborhood and so this particular youth movement which is called hero it's a christian youth movement what they actually did was um, say, "Okay, we want to be active in um, we want to be active uh, in this neighbourhood again. So, how can we actually build, rebuild that model?" And so they actually made a a, an, uh, a course, a one year course, in which they involved um, each year a couple of girls from the neighbourhood, which they recruited personally girls from around 17 to 18 years old, mainly with a migrant background. A lot of them uh, had a Moroccan background because this is a a large uh, migrant population in that particular neighborhood. And they actually trained them to become uh, young volunteers to organize activities. And the idea was that they would spread them around uh, in the city uh, and and set up uh, local chapters to make them more diverse. In fact, it didn't work as planned because what happened is that these young girls, while they've been uh, trained they actually started questioning the youth model and saying why can we have a can we have a veil as part of the uniform is that possible what about uh, certain plays that we do should it be on a Sunday afternoon because some migrant children may go to the mosque for example uh, on a Sunday afternoon what kind of games do we play All kinds of activities which were traditional for uh, the hero, which they were trying to question and say, well, maybe this is not necessary. Maybe we can do other activities. And how much can we expand and can we, um, this youth model, if we do organize other activities, is it still a youth uh, movement? Is it still the hero as it was today? Now, the most controversial issue here was something we didn't expect. Because when these young uh, girls who were, um, then ready to set up a chapter said, Well, in fact, what we need to make this work is we need professional support because in Molenbeek, there are lots of social problems. And so the youngsters that we entertain in the weekend, they often commit social problems. Some of them are traumatized by war experiences or living in difficult circumstances, have a lot of stress, have behavior problems. don't have enough money to buy the uniform to go on the summer camp and so on. And that is just too much for volunteers. So we need professional support to make this model working. And so they brought this to the national chapter and discussed with other young people who were involved as volunteers in this youth movement. And this created a large outrage. And many of the other young people were really angry and said, no, we can't change the model here because our model is based on, we, are, we as youngsters, we do that as volunteers for children. And it's a, it's a thing for youngsters. It's not something we want to have adult people involved especially not paid adults, professionals. We want to keep them away. That's not what we want. And so the most controversial thing to change this model was really about what is the position of professionals in youth work. And this youth movement said, we are a volunteer thing. We don't want to have paid adults involved. And so what I'm trying to tell here is that um, it's a long long story, so I, um, I will not explain it to, to the full detail. But what I'm trying to explain here is that, in fact, they were pretty successful in recreating the youth association in Molenbeek. But before they could do so, they had to renegotiate what it was that they were engaging in. And they could do so because they did it in a specific neighborhood which they knew well, and in which they thought, let's let's, let's see how we can organize a youth activity here in this specific neighborhood with the children that are here. And let's not take history as assumed. Let's see how we can change a model to adapt it to what we need today. So that's just one example of how you can nurture solidarity in diversity. And maybe I just give one, ex- one other example before I um, finish here. Let me see. I had four examples, but I will only do two. This is another example. This is uh, a picture from a school in Leuven, which is a suburban community around Brussels. Um, and the idea here was this is a school which is close to the university hospital. And the school population here used to be quite established. Um, it was an established population of a lot of children, of people that worked at university, some uh, an social socioeconomic background, pretty educated, high school capital. So this school was really well performing. And many of its pupils went on for a successful educational career, even went to university, where it became successful people in life. And then the past 15 years, things started to change. The population of the neighborhood changed there was a lot of inflow of newcomers, especially people uh, with an asylum-seeking status. And so in five to six, seven years' time, the population of the school was completely changed from an advantage, mainly white, middle-class population to a much more diverse uh, school population of pupils, also often with a much weaker socioeconomic background. And initially, the school team responded badly to that. They were saying, well, the level at school, the level of performance at school is dropping. We can't reach our standards. The school population is is too difficult. We can't reach our standards. We're not performing to the same extent. So in fact, what they were doing is they were looking at history and saying, well, we can only do so as a team. We can only do whatever we do if we can maintain the same standards, if we can do as it has been done in the history of that school. And so what happened is, is that the actual solidarity, bonds of solidarity, which you always have in a school between teachers and children, at least in well-performing school, actually eroded. And a growing distance emerged between students, uh, between the the, the teachers and the pupils. They didn't recognize themselves anymore in the pupils. They didn't know what these people were. They didn't sort of felt that they, that they belonged together anymore. And there was a lot of nostalgia to a past of when the school was performing well. And this only changed And that's a break in history, which is often necessary to create solidarity and diversity. This only changed when a new school director arrived, which was not from the school itself, who didn't know the school and who said, I have no idea what the school used to be like. I'm just going to try to create a school community here. anew, with the people that are here, not with some nostalgia about the past, but with the people that are here, with the pupils that are here and their parents. And so what he did was very simple. He said, we had to reconnect the neighborhood we have to reconnect to the school in that neighborhood because that's the place that we have to build together and he did some very simple things to change that he said every morning i'm going to be at the school gate as a director and i'm going to see the population of pupils coming into the school i'm going to make small conversations with the parents i'm going to meet the diversity in the neighborhood and i'm going to try to reconnect that to better get to know it and he also connected to local organization it turned out that a significant part of the pupils of that school would after school go to a volunteering organization who would give them homework classes all by volunteers and so they made connections with that organization um, they would also uh, try to bring in the experience of this diverse group of students in in the in in the classroom so for example in the beginning of the class they would say okay everybody can tell a story and the idea, of course, is, is that in Belgium education, the kind of education is very, is, is, is modeled on, on this nation state model. We tell the history, the First World War, the Second World War. So when we the experience that are shared in that school are very much the experiences which are important to that historical nation state. And so they try to break through that by saying, okay, uh, we don't share that history anymore. We have to bring in the history of the pupils. So we need to make room in the curriculum so pupils can bring in their histories, which often come from very far removed from that particular place. And by doing so, he was able to turn that school around. He was able to reforge connection between the teachers and the pupils by taking a joint responsibility for that place, by creating something that they could share, taking joint responsibility for the place of, that that school was, and by reconnecting to the neighborhood. And in fact, by doing so, he was able to sort of rebuild solidarity with um, in diversity in that diverse uh, school population. And, I hope you enjoyed this. If you want to read more about this, here are two articles and a book in which we uh, develop these perspectives further. Thank you for your attention.
0: This lecture was originally recorded for the Manifesto for the Just City workshop, organized in partnership with several schools. The Institute of Housing and Urban Development Studies of the Erasmus University in Rotterdam the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, the Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, and a number of universities who took up this exercise as a class exercise, notably Morgan University in Baltimore and the Cape Peninsula University in Cape Town, South Africa. This event was organized by me, Caroline Newton, also from TU Delft, Hugo Lopez, Professor Russell Smith from Winston-Salem University Carolina, Luneta from IHS in Rotterdam, and Professor Faranak Miraftab from the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign. This podcast is produced by Roberto Rocco and Hugo Lopez, music by Hugo Lopez and Pablo Teixeira, sound edition by Hugo Lopez. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education, outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of design for values. The Duty of Care podcast is sponsored by the Delft Design for Values Institute, the portal for design for values research, education, outreach, and co-creation at Delft University of Technology, advancing knowledge, methods, and best practices in the area of design for values. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, and if you want to learn more about spatial justice and our duty of care towards the planet and each other, don't forget to hit subscribe. See you next time.